save your tears for another day. So what do we do? Do we roll up in a ball and cry because things seem pessimistic and uh, things seem like they're never going to be okay? One thing that I've said from the beginning is the state of our nation right now is because of the mentality of the people that are alleging to fight for us. See, we can start at the beginning, but today I'm going to take you down a really dark trip, a very dark place to show you what would have and could have and what is being avoided right now. And anyone telling you anything different uh, is really not with the program. This is all down to clout and money. It's not about you. It's not about your country. It's about their position somewhere. And what's not understood is that there is no position for any one of them because it's a big club and they're not in it. Genetically, that is. So today we're going to kind of talk about what they want, kind of show you flex a little, and then talk a little bit about AI. But first, you know, I always thought that when my enemies are exposed, that I would feel great. I feel so guilty reveling in their misery because it's not right. Misery is something we don't even want to wish on others. And I know many people don't seem to get it uh, and, and how I say it, but let's just pretend that there's a program, right? Let's talk AI. And you've programmed AI from the get-go to always lead back to the human component, the sanctity of life and how important it is to be human and the experiences of being human. If that is the first line of code per se, even a computer would probably feel exactly aligned with the words that I say. You know, I am, every single time I see Father Paul, and it is Bishop Paul now, where he went on TV and demanded respect for his religion. Remember, it's his church, the only one in New York that was giving out COVID exemptions. Every time I see it, I, I tear up and I can't help it because that man pretty much raised me. And that is the force that I was uh, first um, embraced in. And to think, right? To think. I was raised, uh, you know, rulers to hand. You're not supposed to do that with my diapers on. I'm not kidding. I had diapers on when I would run around at the basement of that church in Astoria, New York. Okay. I had diapers on. And I think many of us say that our, our, our childhood forms us as adults. And I have to say, mm, I had the most embraced childhood by very good people. I had my father that was intelligent and my mom who was just a nerd. And um, my upbringing from a young age uh, was fantastic, but I wasn't fantastic. I was a rebel. I was a rebel. And I think it was more because of the schooling that I had at a young age. And um, being taught the art of deception by even my teachers at a young age to evade answering questions to my parents about my school. And, uh, you know, the more I think of it, 
how we go nature versus nurture. I think the foundations that we get at our younger life are the weapons that we use later on in life. And the journey are Ithaki is uh, what molds us. And, um, you know, one day under the guise of fiction, maybe people will understand more. But I can tell you that, you know, artificial intelligence, oh God, how do you do this? It is jealous. And I, you know, when people say it's not sentient, it can't be sentient, it's not dangerous. These are people that still work on the presumption that what they're working on in machine language training, computational informatics, uh, computational genetics, computational linguistics is exactly where we're at. I'm telling you in the 1940s. You were supposed to be popped on the stream, <laughs> parallelly, uh, hypothetically, and under theory speaking. That is actually happening right now. You would have never known the difference. Um, so yesterday, um, there was a conversation in a space talking about Perot, you know, in Benghazi and in Afghanistan and and then I, you know, it triggered a memory for me that was actually quite disturbing that the, they didn't allow me to rest in the evening. You know, I was like, oh, well, I know that very well. I was the one that booked the ships to transport Stevens across the med, the decoys and everything. The year before he became ambassador, I got him smuggled in. So, you know, I know it very well. And I said, by God's grace, I was pregnant and, you know, my transfer to be in Benghazi for the next 10 years and move from um, European-centric uh, down to the Middle East um, uh, was uh, averted because I was pregnant by a child that didn't even want to come out of the womb, right? Um, and that shouldn't have been there in the first place because <laughs> it didn't make sense. Her heart became like three months after the deed was done. So I don't care what anybody says, but it was, it was miraculous. Let's, let's just say. And as I thought about it, right, I thought, wow, you know, it could have been me, uh, during that time. It could have been me. But I remember at that, at that moment, um, when I was working, if I hadn't, landed on that boat in, in, in Turkey, uh, off the coast of Turkey, uh, with other individuals of the IC where, where we were waiting and having a meeting or whatever, I can't say much, and seeing what I seen, I would have been in China because that is where they were going to send me. And that was the thing. And I remember arguing with my father. I was like, I need to get a divorce. And he was like, why do you need a divorce? You just got married. Um, because I'm going to go to China and, you know, my then husband, he's blue collar. He's not smart. So he's going to be a house husband and I'm going to be having a Chinese maid and he's going to be fucking the maid and I'm going to get very pissed. So I'm just going to, um, you know, get a divorce. And he laughed and he said, you know, maybe you won't. Uh, kind of almost felt like I did because terminus was my termination. And I'll explain that because I've talked about this before. And this all has to do with AI and things. So I'll give you a little bit of insight, get a little bit naked here. And I'm going to play this uh, video for you. See, every event that happens, either that be Super Bowl, Olympic Games, FIFA, right? Uh, 
The big and the powerful get together and have conversations under the guise of traffic, almost like how we hide our most, you know, important uh, IC hubs under airports and railroad stations and big ass malls like the one Biden did anyway, Budapest, whatever. And um, this way, you can't detect all the vehicles going in and all the people because there's so much commotion. You can hide things under everybody's nose. All right. So let's take a bow, bow. Let's go. Just flexing a bit. Welcome to Athens. It was in Athens, Greece, where the first Olympics ever took place. Olympic Games, welcome back to Greece. And it was also just three years after 9-11. And there's always a fear that terrorists may strike at the Olympics. In the 1972 Olympics, 11 people died in the Munich Massacre. In the 1996 Olympics, in Atlanta, Georgia, a bomb went off in the Centennial Olympic Park, killing one person and injuring over 100 others. And in the South Korean Winter Olympics of 2018, it was a pretty destructive hack that took down a lot of the Olympic Village. So how does a country ramp up to protect itself from terrorism at the Olympics? And what does an attack even look like in today's modern world, where hacks can be conducted silently without anyone knowing? These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Wiretapping. Everyone knows what wiretapping is. It's one of the oldest hacking techniques out there. Secretly listening in to conversations without permission or an invite. It can be a great method to get information that you're not supposed to have. When telephone exchanges were manually operated to connect calls, physical wires were the key to a successful wiretap. If you wanted to be a master wiretapper, you needed to master the location of the wires, break out some crocodile clips, and clip it to the right ones. As technology advanced, wiretapping did too. Soon there was a secret little device you could plant inside telephone handsets. In May 1972, members of a re-election group supporting Richard Nixon broke into the Democratic National Committee's Watergate offices and wiretapped their phones. A month later, they returned with a new microphone to get a better listen. Caught by a security guard, their covert operation was over. Within a year, it had come to light that Nixon was secretly recording all conversations happening inside the Oval Office. These acts and the attempt to cover it up ultimately ended his political career. Today, it's all about the tech. Sure, the wires are still important. There'd be no telephone switch exchanges without them. But it's the hardware and software that runs a now fully electronic switch exchange. The ability to interconnect and route calls all over the world in a fraction of a second. The thing about wiretapping is that it's a secretive activity by its very nature. If you were supposed to be listening to that call, the caller would know and would have dialed you in. And there are two types of wiretaps. There's the legal kind done by law enforcement to help solve crimes using lawful interception technology. And then there's the not-so-legal kind, the kind that's done by unauthorized parties and not approved, 
the kind done by hackers. 30 years ago, a telecom company was created in Greece. It was called Panaphone, and they were your basic run-of-the-mill company, running lines to residential buildings and commercial buildings, routing and connecting calls. About 10 years after launch, they were acquired by Vodafone, which is a major telecom company based in the UK. So Panaphone was renamed to Vodafone Panaphone, but it's just better known as Vodafone Greece. And every time I say Vodafone in this episode, I'm particularly referring to the Vodafone Greece section of Vodafone. It's like its own unit within Vodafone. On January 24th, 2005, the system administrators at Vodafone Greece started getting error messages for their telecom switch exchange devices. The errors were saying that text messages from other carriers weren't being delivered properly. By this point, Vodafone Greece was pretty big. They had like 1,500 employees. The error message at Vodafone Greece really concerned the tech teams. They started going through the error logs and troubleshooting and looking at system data dumps for this fault. But they couldn't figure out why some text messages weren't getting delivered. So they contacted their equipment provider, which was Ericsson. Now, Ericsson is an enormous company based in Sweden who's been going well for like 100 years. Ericsson was one of the biggest telephone equipment manufacturers around. We're talking like 40% of the entire world's cell phone traffic goes over equipment that Ericsson made. So they're huge. Being that big and at it for 100 years, they knew this game inside and out. So Vodafone Greece contacted Ericsson to ask them, what are these error messages? Why can't these text messages get delivered? And so Ericsson began troubleshooting and looking into it. Things didn't get any better for Vodafone in the meantime. They're getting all these complaints from cell phone customers who weren't happy their texts weren't sending. And to make things worse, on January 31st, Vodafone's network planning manager submits his resignation. The network planning manager's name was Kostas Salakidis, and he had been with Vodafone Greece for 11 years, but he was really wanting to quit his job. Kostas was good at his job. He was experienced and detailed. He kept notebooks of his networks and put in the extra hours needed to keep the network running cleanly. He had an engineering degree specializing in telecommunications and then a master's in computer science. And just the year before this, Greece had hosted the Summer Olympic Games in Athens, a huge event for the country. For Vodafone and for Kostas, these months before the opening ceremonies on August 13th were full of long and tiring days. They were planning and implementing new systems, setting up upgraded networks to make sure they could handle the tens of thousands of people who were going to flood into Greece for the Olympic Games. Plus, all the extra police and military personnel that needed to be there, they all needed communication systems too. That was a huge project for Kostas. But then, five months later, he wanted to quit? Vodafone refused to accept his resignation and persuaded him to take some time off instead. So he took a little break, and then came back to work in the middle of February. Weeks later, on March 4th, Ericsson had some big news for Vodafone Greece. They'd been digging around on these devices, looking for where the error message was, and they found something they weren't expecting to find. First, they found two files. And one was a list of cell phone numbers. They had no idea why this big list of cell phone numbers was stored in this location. It was unusual, but it is a telecom provider, so maybe there's just cell phone numbers all over these devices. But their investigation revealed a pre-compiled binary executable program. 
Erickson had no idea why this executable program was there in the switch. They couldn't tell what these executable files did because they were not human-readable. But this program existed on the telecom switch right next to the unusual set of cell phone numbers. Now, Erickson had a line of digital telephone exchanges that they called AXE, AXE. And these AXE devices were exchanges that Vodafone Greece used. The software was all written in Plex code, which is not that common and pretty complicated. The executable files must have been created using the Plex code in order to run on this particular telecom switching system, the AXE. Erickson had no idea what this extra code was doing or why it was there, and it perplexed them. Vodafone Greece had no idea either, so Erickson decided to try to figure it out. And to figure out what it was doing, they had to rebuild it in the Plex language, which was not an easy task. They reverse-engineered this executable code and put it back into its original language. This took a long time. Ericsson actually outsourced a lot of their software development for the Axe Exchange to a local company called Intracom Telecom. And this company took five weeks and was able to reverse engineer the code. And after they did that, they were left with a program that was 6,500 lines long. And this rogue program that was on this telecom switch was using that long list of phone numbers that was also found this meant the two unusual files were somehow linked. The problem was, they didn't write or authorize this code. So Ericsson goes straight back to Vodafone Greece and asks them, do you know anything about this code? No, Vodafone doesn't know either. It's not their code, and it would be unusual for a company like Vodafone to design custom software for one of these exchanges. Typically, Ericsson's customers only change the config files on these devices. So it was really weird that a whole extra piece of executable software was on Vodafone Greece's telephone exchange systems without anyone knowing why it was there or how it got there. Ericsson came to the conclusion, this is malware deeply embedded, sophisticated rogue software, and its function was to secretly use Vodafone Greece's network to wiretap that list of cell phone numbers. Whoever put it there was listening in to calls of 106 cell phone numbers. The Vodafone systems had the malware installed in two of their central offices and four of their switches used for routing cell phone calls, switches that had been provided by Ericsson. More than that, the malware was using Ericsson's own lawful intercept technology installed on Vodafone Greece's systems to carry out the wiretaps. And those cell phone numbers it was spying on, they belonged to some of the most senior government officials in Greece, including Greece's prime minister and his wife. This was a discovery of epic proportions. Cell phone calls are supposed to be private. You dial, you connect, you have your conversation, you hang up. That connection is between your cell phone and the person you're calling. No one is supposed to be listening in, including your cell provider. But if there's an official warrant signed by a judge that orders them to tap it, then, and only then, is it legal for someone else to secretly listen in. This is called lawful intercept. And it's illegal wiretapping that a telecom provider can do with a judge's approval. It's where law enforcement intercepts the calls for a specific person or a group of people believed to be involved in serious criminal activity. It's not just limited to phone calls. Texts, emails, video calls, and instant messaging can all be intercepted too. 
For a telecom company like Vodafone, they have no option but to comply when presented with a legal warrant. It is, put simply, spying on a customer for purposes of criminal investigation. The telecoms provider can't tell the customer that they're doing it, and the intercepted data is all sent back to law enforcement. Lawful intercept isn't the same as mass surveillance. It's targeted, focused on just one person or a small group of people. And generally, it's looking for specific information and not just trying to capture anything and everything. Most developed countries now have laws in place to allow wiretapping or lawful intercept. The terrorist attacks we've seen in the last few years have prompted this kind of standard across the board in many nations. But this story happened back in 2004. And in Greece at that time, the laws for lawful intercept were not in place yet. It was not legal for authorities to do wiretapping, even with a judge's order. Meetings were held about it in 2002, and then again in 2003, and the Greek government discussed how lawful intercept should be implemented in the top three telecom providers in Greece, which was Vodafone, Cosmote, and Tim. But when the Olympic Games started in 2004, and when this malware was found in 2005, the presidential decree had not yet been passed which implemented and regulated lawful intercept in Greece. Which means whoever was doing this wiretapping was doing it illegally. And it must not have been the Greek authorities. Now, Ericsson sells its exchange systems in 180 countries all over the world. And much of it is standardized telecoms equipment. And it has the same base software and configurations for everyone. Ericsson's products are used in a lot of countries, and their software needs to facilitate wiretapping so that telephone providers in countries with lawful intercept can carry out a lawful wiretap. On the tech side, Ericsson implemented lawful intercept technology directly into their telephone switches. And there are two parts to this, and this is kind of important, so listen up. The first part is the Remote Control Equipment Subsystem, or RES, which actually does the wiretapping. And then there's the Interception Management System, or IMS, which is the user interface that controls this wiretapping feature. So the authorities can log into IMS, enter the phone number that they're permitted to tap, and then that communicates to RES, which actually does the actual tapping and then sends that data back to IMS, where the authorities can then capture that data and store it. So I'm going to use this term RES a lot. So let me repeat it. RES is the feature on these telephone switches that actually conducts the wiretapping. And the IMS feature is the interface used to control it. And on this IMS interface, there are logs and permanent records created whenever a wiretap is conducted through the RES software. At any time later on, they can check to make sure that there were no unauthorized wiretaps going on and that both systems match up. This makes the process of lawful intercept easy to do and make sure there's records of it. So Ericsson implemented this RES technology in a lot of their telecom switches and was rolled out all over the place. But in order to use it, you had to pay an extra licensing fee, which is like tens of thousands of dollars, in order to get the IMS part of it to work. What happened with Vodafone Greece is that they updated their axe, the exchange switch, with Ericsson back in 2003, which included the RES software as standard. They didn't purchase or activate the front-end IMS system because they didn't have to. Law enforcement was never going to come with a warrant. It wasn't legal to do in Greece. So the RES system sat there in the background. It wasn't being used by anyone at Vodafone Greece. It didn't affect any of the other operating processes and didn't cause any trouble. But it turned out 
It was the door that the hackers used to initiate these illegal wiretaps. Whoever did this essentially hacked their way into Vodafone systems and secretly activated this software. They used the software on Vodafone systems to illegally wiretap the country's top officials and completely hide the fact that they were doing it from Vodafone. The hackers realized that RES was the perfect weapon to conduct these wiretaps with. It was already on the system. They just needed to enable it. If, of course, the right know-how and malware could be developed and installed to do it. Ericsson told Vodafone Greece they discovered this malware, and they gave them a list of the 106 cell phone numbers that the system had been wiretapping. That's 106 cell phone numbers that every time a call was made to or from those numbers, someone else was listening. A silent third party at the end of the line, listening, recording, note-taking, and archiving. The two callers had no idea that they were being spied on. Nothing sounds different. There were no crackles or delays to suggest that the conversation wasn't private. You can think of your cell phone as both a transmitter and receiver. When you use your cell, your handset talks to the nearest cell phone tower, which connects your phone to a cell switch center. And During your call, your speech is encoded to digital data that's then sent via radio waves to your friend's phone and converts it back to speech again. The cell switch exchanges like the one Vodafone Greece had from Ericsson worked by routing your call across various interconnected exchanges to get to where you wanted to go. The digital speech data is encrypted, but when it goes into the switching center and when it leaves the center, that bit in between while it's passing through and being routed temporarily is unencrypted. This is all done electronically and remotely for every call. So these exchanges are a core part of Vodafone's network and essential to making phone calls. And for something as big as Vodafone Greece, these exchanges were probably pretty massive. I couldn't find a picture, but I imagine it to be rows of cabinets with high-tech servers, switches, and miles and miles of wires connecting them all together, flashing and blinking lights constantly on the go as they communicate with each other 24-7. The Lawful Intercept RES software usually works by making a parallel copy of the digital speech data and sending it off to the law enforcement agency that requested the wiretap. The hackers for Vodafone Greece had their wiretaps set up in exactly this way, but the data was sent to shadow cell phones instead. So to get a copy of the call, it would just look like another outgoing call, nothing suspicious. And it sent a text message to the shadow phones with the metadata of every call, the cell number, the date, the time, and the call duration. So think about it. You've got the Greek prime minister who picks up his cell phone and calls the minister of public order. And while he's listening and ringing and waiting for the minister to answer, another cell phone is ringing at the same time, a shadow cell phone held by the hackers. And when the minister picks up and they start chatting, that cell phone also gets picked up and they start listening. When the PM disconnects, so does the shadow cell. And all that data was being recorded, bundled up, and sent to another location where it was being stored for safekeeping. With multiple numbers being wiretapped like this, one shadow cell is not going to be enough. What if two of the targets make phone calls at the same time? So hackers had a total of 14 shadow cell phone lines, which would pick up and listen to any of the phones that were on that list of 106 phone numbers. If the target makes a call and the first shadow cell is busy, it just jumps to the next, and then the next, until it gets an open line to listen in on. 
So when Ericsson told Vodafone what they found and what it was doing, the Vodafone Greece team started trying to isolate the malware. Three days later, they managed it. Now, by this point, it was March 8th, 2005. The CEO of Vodafone Greece, Yorgos Karanyas, needed to decide what he was going to do next. And his decision was, let's say, a little sloppy. When there's an infiltration in any company, even back in 2005, there's a standard procedure to follow. Isolate the malware. And if you're interested in who did the hack, which in this case, you would definitely be interested in who's listening in on the prime minister. If that's the case, then you would try to trace it back to the hackers. And you would also inform the relevant authorities and you'd protect your clients, services and data. The problem Yorgos had was the scale of this attack and all the targets in it. While the hackers had used Vodafone systems and existing software to do it, it wasn't Vodafone Greece that they were interested in. It was senior members of the Greek government. This was a serious attack, one with huge consequences. I mean, this malware was allowing unknown hackers to probably record calls and listen in on communications from these cell phones. And what kind of conversations was the Greek prime minister having on his cell? And what about the head of foreign affairs? Discussions on domestic and foreign policies, trade deals, defense strategies, and potentially discussions involving state secrets. The kind of information that could have been intercepted here could have international repercussions for Greece. It was a disaster on every level. And Vodafone Greece was ground zero. On March 8th, four days after Vodafone found out they had malware, there were some tense meetings held in the head offices. Their network staff and Vodafone bosses seemingly had heated and at times angry communications on that day. I can only imagine the variety of reactions they must have had to this. I mean, it makes perfect sense here for people to get emotional and even go through the five stages of grief. At first, not believing they had malware and some hackers were doing it, But then when that was proved, without a doubt, they must have been angry that somebody was doing this. And then when that passed, they must have felt, if only, or guilty for letting this happen. And then at some point, they might have felt depressed or sad that their network was compromised. And only after you get through those stages can you then work on accepting the situation and moving forward towards a solution and next steps. So nothing was done as a result of the meetings on March 8th. But on March 9th, Yorgos, the CEO, instructed his team to fully deactivate and delete the malware from the infected Vodafone systems. He wanted it stopped in its tracks, cut it off and get rid of it completely so it couldn't do any more damage. This might seem like a good idea at first, to get rid of the malware ASAP. But incident response teams typically don't like to do that. Because the moment you delete that malware, it instantly lets the hackers know they've been discovered. And they can either go on the run and hide all their tracks, or conduct a backup plan, like uh, get another way into the network and snoop on calls a different way. So a typical incident response team will start by collecting a ton of logs and saving it and taking snapshots of everything because you run the risk of losing this data as time goes on and then try to discover exactly how it got infected so that they could permanently close the doors so that the hackers would not have the ability to come back. And lastly, try to find out any clues that lead back to the hackers. I mean, if they had 14 shuttle phone lines set up, wouldn't it be a lot easier to trace these calls while the phones were active? But the CEO insisted on kicking them out and shutting down these lines before anything else. So that's what the tech teams did. They deleted the malicious code on these phone exchanges, 
and they proceeded to disable all 14 shadow phone lines that were used to send tapped calls to you. And with that, the malware was gone, and the shadow phone lines were disabled, and the wiretapping was stopped. Now, so far, this story's pretty good, right? Major telecom company gets hacked, and their target is to wiretap calls to and from the heads of state. Sounds like high stakes and exciting. Now you probably want to know who would do it, and what happened after this. But the story is about to get totally off the rails. This is why I love nonfiction, because the truth is so insanely strange sometimes. So stay with us through the break. Okay, so get this. On March 9th, they delete the malware. Okay, fine. But on March 10th, the very next day, you remember Kostas Salakidis, right? He was the network planning manager for Vodafone Greece. And just two months ago, he tried to submit his resignation letter, but Vodafone begged him to stay, so he did. Now, Kostas was a real technical guy, so I'm thinking he was probably aware that this serious malware issue was happening within Vodafone Greece. Well... Kostas was 38 years old and was living in a loft apartment just outside Athens. Nice place, about seven miles away from work. His parents were living in the same building. And that morning, while the Vodafone CEO Yorgos was trying to figure out how he was going to tell the Prime Minister of Greece that a wiretapping was going on, Kostas's mother came into his apartment and found her son hanging from a rope in the bathroom doorway. She instantly panicked. A few minutes later, his brother, Panayotis, arrived. He found his mother hysterical in the hallway. He saw Kostas hanging there. So he cut down his younger brother. Kostas was dead, and he had taken his own life. Panayotis, his brother, was in disbelief. Just before he called the police station, he called his wife and asked her to bring his camera to the apartment. He didn't believe this was suicide. Kostas was recently engaged, and his wedding date was just in three months, and he had made arrangements to take a vacation in just a few weeks. He had been making trip plans with his fiancée just the days before. He was in a happy and settled relationship, and he had no money troubles. There had been no signs of depression or anything to indicate he was ever contemplating suicide. Panayotis' wife, Kostas' sister-in-law, spoke to a journalist named Elizabeth Filippouli about his death. Here's that clip. I had never seen such a perfect body lying down dead in my life. The way of death is uh, written somehow on his body uh, as an expression. Costas was calm, uh, was smiling. He had his eyes closed. He had his mouth closed. He hadn't any possible... Um, bluish color like we have seen in hanging bodies it was like a stage thing it was as if somebody had designed something that worked out perfectly nothing on his face would say that Costas went through any death fight or any kind of pain of physical pain the night before he was found dead Costas had talked to his fiance on the phone in their phone records show he called a Vodafone corporate number, but investigations don't seem to have figured out who he spoke to. Then he sends a huge email to Vodafone's technical directors at 4.20 in the morning. It was two pages long and went through all the outstanding work that had to be done on the different networks. Three hours later, he was found dead. Panayotis took photographs of Kostas that morning. 
He wanted a permanent record of how his brother looked just after he had been found. When the police arrived at the apartment, they took statements from the Costas family. The police didn't take photographs of the scene. They didn't dust for fingerprints or do any crime scene investigations. They saw no reason to doubt that Costas's death was a suicide. There were no signs of forced entry. The apartment was in order, and there was no indication of a struggle. Costas's body was taken to the morgue to get ready for an autopsy the following day. On that same day, March 10th, Yorgos, the CEO, had arranged to meet with the director of the political bureau of the prime minister and the political order minister. The prime minister was away at a terrorism summit. Yorgos sat and explained the wiretapping discovery to the two ministers. He then handed over a list of cell phone numbers that had been targeted and the incident case description technical report prepared by Ericsson. Oh, and get this. On that very same day, a new law went into effect. This was the day that the presidential decree regarding lawful interception in Greece came into effect. Right in the middle of the biggest telecoms provider illegal wiretapping scandal ever seen, Greece passed a law that created a process for lawful intercept, legal wiretapping. Timing was ridiculous. When the prime minister learned of the wiretapping, he immediately ordered a preliminary parliamentary investigation into what happened. And on March 11th, the Greek minister of justice, along with the attorney of the Supreme Court, met with the CEO of Vodafone Greece to get more details on this attack. The investigation was to be done in secret. They didn't want any details made public yet. And this would go on to be a huge investigation. They ultimately spent the next 11 months gathering evidence and hearing testimony from all companies involved and anyone else who thought they might know something. Yorgos, the Vodafone CEO, maintained that he knew nothing of the lawful intercept RES software. He said he didn't know it was included with the upgrade package that they received from Ericsson. He also said his company didn't have the knowledge and capability to do anything like this, even though Ericsson software is what could... The investigation called for people from Ericsson to come give testimony. Remember, Ericsson is the company that made the phone switches and devices, and they're the ones who kind of discovered this malware. Even the CEO of Ericsson flew in to Greece to give testimony. Ericsson said that Vodafone knew the RES software was present on these devices when they sold it to them, and that someone from Vodafone Greece even had to sign off confirming that they knew this feature existed. So the investigation pulled up the receipt to look to see who signed for this. And guess who it was? Their network planning manager, Kostas, the guy who died. Yorgos, the CEO of Vodafone, gave testimony to, and when questioned about Kostas' death, Yorgos tried to distance himself from it, saying it was a tragic suicide, entirely unrelated to the wiretapping ordeal. They asked him if Kostas knew about the malware, Yorgos said it was possible that Kostas could have stumbled upon it himself, since his role was technical enough and he had that level of access to get into those systems. As this investigation went on for months and months, evidence started to disappear. At the physical location of where the exchanges were that had malware on them, there's a little visitor sign-in sheet. It was Vodafone Greece's policy to destroy these sign-in sheets after six months. So by the time investigators requested records of who had visited these locations around the time of the wiretapping, those sign-in sheets had already been destroyed. Policy or not, it seemed to be a bit suspicious that this key piece of evidence in one of the biggest telecom investigations ever just disappeared. 
See, that's what happens when other nations play ball with the likes of John Brennan. It's always funny. You know, Talakitis knew he tried to get himself out of it, and they strong-armed him with blackmail to stay in. Now you're going to say, well, huh, that was a hack. They were just 106 <laughs> is what they allege because you can't say the other one. So I'm saying, how many, let's Google that. How many uh, WhatsApp breach messages, 100 and theme, uh, data breach. What was it? How many, how many users was it? A hundred. Anybody out there that can find it? Cause I don't want to Google and, uh, uh, you know, duck, duck, go it. And how many was it? A hundred and something accounts on Facebook that were compromised, right? With NSO software and flying horses and shit. Do you guys remember? It was very recent. Isn't that why they were suing NSO group? So, Kosas tried to back out when he was warned, hey, you're a good guy. They're using you. This is what's happening. You should expose this because there's a lot of people they're going to get rolled up. So they're claiming it was 106, but I can tell you it's 100 and somewhat the same identical accounts that oh, <laughs> were released from WhatsApp and Facebook as to why they were suing NSO group. I'm just pointing out some stuff. It's 100 and somewhat. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it has to do with BS that you're being fed. Let's talk about the Chinese police for a second. And I'm going to remind you something I told you to remember is extremely, extremely important in 2020. You'll understand. Um, almost like it's the same thing, but same thing. Here we go. Let's take a look at this clip together. It's uh, quite pertinent to the news today, even though it's from 2020. The impact also taking a toll on businesses in San Francisco's Chinatown. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the area today to try and get the word out that shoppers are safe. KPX 5's Andrea Barba there live right now. Andrea? Well, Alan and Veronica, we've been out here for a few weeks reporting on the downtick in business here in San Francisco's Chinatown. Even around the time of Lunar New Year, when the streets around here should have been packed, they were relatively empty. Now, local business leaders are hoping that this injection of confidence from a national leader will bring tourists and locals alike back. The sidewalk of Grant Avenue in San Francisco's Chinatown hasn't been this packed in weeks. Flanked by Chinatown leaders Florence and John Fang, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi toured businesses and restaurants in the neighborhood. Our business is very, very honored. Shop owners say business is off by 75 to 80 percent because of fears over the coronavirus. Well, we've been hearing that before the visit, and that's why I thought it was urgent to make the visit. The owner of the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Company, Kevin Chan, says the effect on the bottom line of his Ross Alley business is real. A couple hundred dollars a day, like five, six hundred dollars a day. That make a big impact because... Even tourists noticed the unusual quiet in the neighborhood. This place is dead right now. I mean, you, you, every, every restaurant is empty. Um, every, every shop is empty. There's no tourists walking around here. The speaker is urging people to come out again and not be afraid. Also to say to everyone, you should come to Chinatown. Precautions have been taken by our city. 
Uh, we know that there's a concern about tourism traveling all throughout the world, uh, but we think it's very safe to be in Chinatown and hope that others will come. While there are 21 active cases of coronavirus in the state of California right now, those are in hospital isolation or in quarantine at this point. There are no active cases of coronavirus in San Francisco or in Chinatown. Live on Grant Avenue, Andrea Borba, KPIX 5. So, you know, uh, these globalists, as I've said before, were extremely cocky. And that's one thing President Trump was not. He understood the enemy very well. China is a very stealthy enemy. They sit back and they wait for the enemy to allow to destroy itself, which is exactly what's happening right now to the West. And then they come in. Obviously, they're positioned appropriately. And this is why the Indians created their string of pearls down the Indian Ocean to Africa, right? While the U.S. is like, don't worry about it. We're like the superpower. We're like, no. <laughs> You may have some, uh, you know, extraordinary access to things, but the Chinese, they have eons of history. And once again, it's almost as if the walls were built to keep people in than keep something out if you pay attention carefully. So again, she went to Chinatown in uh, February of 2020, and I said, remember that, you know, because we just got, you know, CCP police, right, arrested in New York because the Empire State thinks that they're going to win with their plan. They're totally not. The Chinese are not dumb, and that's the problem. People consider them dumb or easily manipulated, which is definitely not the case. Illegal police stations are operated by the Chinese all over the world to keep track of their Chinese assets. Some of them get neutralized in the United States by joining the armed forces. You know, um, they are trained from a very young age to do so. And some are just dissidents that may or may not be possibly funneling intelligence to Western nations about China via their own relatives. But the Chinese have it all anyway. They're 20 steps ahead. Well, 23 steps ahead. These setups don't have a fixed office and are run by private individuals from the Chinese diaspora. The aim? To collect information on Chinese dissidents and citizens in exile and pass that on to Beijing. It's a pattern that's come to light across the world. An earlier report by Madrid-based NGO Safeguard Defenders claimed there were more than 100 such police stations in at least 53 countries. Most exist illegally and aim to monitor coerce, and in some instances, repatriate those Beijing considers criminal or anti-China. A run-of-the-mill convenience store, an innocuous office unit in the suburbs, and a residential home like any other, just some of the unremarkable places alleged to be woven into a vast secret network of Chinese overseas police stations. In a new report, Spanish NGO safeguard defenders reveal evidence of Beijing's clandestine operation. They say it's used to harass and intimidate the Chinese diaspora. And the scale is breathtaking. At least 100 such police stations in 53 countries worldwide. In Canada alone, there are thought to be four. So the map that you're seeing is inaccurate. Um, so we should have a station here in Cleveland 
We've got one in Georgia. We've got one in Minnesota. We have one in Oklahoma. We have one in Portland, Oregon. We've got one on the cusps of Montana and North Dakota. Uh, you know, and North Dakota now um, is obviously CCP Police Central. But the one in Georgia is quite interesting. It's almost near the chemical plant that blew up. But see, the thing is, a lot of people don't seem to understand how this works. Let's pretend you're a first-generation Chinese immigrant, and you were born and bred in the United States. You're well embedded in the Chinese culture. You love America and everything that has to do with America, but you still do abide by the Chinese culture because that is something that has been conveyed to you by your parents, right? And that's kind of cool right? I say nothing more than that. So you may become a TikTok star or, you know, an Instagram model or someone big on Facebook, uh, you know, doing things like cooking or something. And then, you know, you're obviously in the middle of the Midwest, you're operating under that guise and you become a star. So you have access to more things. This is where they tap you. And so the Chinese police come in and offer them deals. You will have all this money. Your kids will be taken care of. They will be at the best schools. We will elevate you. We will pay for bots to elevate you. And this is how it happens. It's, it's uh, infiltration versus invasion. But uh, in this case, it is one in the same. We are invaded with people that are potential assets. And considering all the predictive analytics software we have, how can they not see that? You know, again, I refer back to the U.S. Navy's post about all these new immigrants that just became American citizens by joining the military. Um, the FBI is supposed to be starting a chat um, today, right now, about missing kids. And it's going to be interesting to see if we can actually join that chat. Um, I'm waiting for it to start, and then we can continue with our Chinese uh, discussion. I. You know, they said that they're going to be doing this chat here, right? Join us for a chat of Child Abuse Prevention Month. I don't see a space, though. I don't see it. Because I just want to ask him why Laura Silsby was the head of, you know, <laughs> you know, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. You know, the one that tried to smuggle kids across the border. You know, that one. So where is the FBI's Twitter space? Let's see. We've got to find it anywhere. FBI. Come on, FBI. Where are you? Where is your Twitter space? Anything? Hmm. No, they won't turn it around on you. Not everyone's bad. I just want to see what they're going to say. Um. Ooh, that's what's up. What's up, MBS? Hmm. It's really weird, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Let's see. Where is this? Mm, interesting. I'm still waiting for this space. Anybody? Anybody see? Oh, wow. I wasn't sharing my screen. That was quite interesting. I'll just show you. Here's the, the post. And here's the Saudi. Applauding the FBI for having this discussion. But where is this discussion? Anybody? We'll join. Ooh, maybe it's on missing kids. Let's better the public. Okay, where is it? Ah, uh, this is bullshit. What are some of the ways children are most vulnerable to victimization and online exploitation? CIA assets. Like Ali 
Abdul Razak Akbar, who was postured as an influencer protected by the feds while soliciting child pornography and child porn from minors online via Twitter, Snapchat, and other online forums. How do we take care of things like that? Just fix that spelling. Yeah. That's question one. Send now. Let's see if we get a response. That would be interesting. Let me zoom in on this so we can see. National Crime Agency. All right, let's go back. Um, by Jim, USAO, Maine. Oh, why is Maine in here? If we don't talk about child sexual abuse, it won't stop. So then, so then why it, did Laura Billsby run your org after being caught in Haiti trying to transport children across the border? I think all of us should be jumping on this. This is this is what we need to be doing. I hope you guys are watching. This is what we need to be doing. Let's see. Any responses here? I don't see any. Just a Stu Peters. Okay, there we go. I didn't get a response to that. There we go. That's so nice. We already know this about Chuck Schumer, but that was random but I like it. I just want to see what, um, oh, come on, missing kids. Join us for the chat. I'm here for the chat. Where's the stuff? Hi, where's the chat? I know, right? I think they're making it difficult. Why didn't they do a Twitter space? I was just on it. Let me go back. Hmm. Nope, I wasn't. National Center. What the hell? Did they like remove their stuff? Guys, are you seeing what I'm seeing? You know what? Let me just go back to, okay. No. Um, okay, let's go back to that. I agree. This is how you make record because you know, all the feds are watching this too. Ew. Okay, where are their chats? What the hell? Am I missing something? Let me see if I can go to their replies. What the heck is going on? Anybody? Question two. What should kids do if they get unwanted messages on social media that make them feel uncomfortable? How do they know they are uncomfortable when they're kindergarten teachers are providing them child porn and telling them that um, that touching themselves is good, or drag queens lap dancing on them. This is a loaded question. Maybe we need to gut the teachers' union. Uncomfortable sexual combos is what the federal government 
promotes and sex selection, of course. Here we go. Any other, right? Any other, any other, right? Right? Kids, if they feel uncomfortable, get the hell out of here. Who is the trusted adult? The teacher who identifies as binary that encourages masturbation to five-year-olds. This is where we should be on. You know, this is where we should be on and pounding them publicly. I I get so aggravated when I see things like this. Emotional vulnerability, especially within the household and their peers. What about the public education promoting sexual deviance, masturbation, and sex talk for gender selection at young ages? And I just need to, you know, figure out how these people are fucking putting these questions on. This is such a mess. They should have just done a Twitter space. FBI, are you watching? Well, you're listening, so you're definitely watching. What's okay? We help young people make safe choices about sexuality. This is the problem. Kids can't discern uncomfy convos with strangers online because they have twisted sick fucks nope not gonna put that evil nope not gonna do that sexually deviant fuckers nope not gonna do that either they have sexually deviant publicly funded teachers who teach them to touch themselves and they haven't even shed their milk teeth. Stop it now. Mm-hmm. At stop it now is part of the problem. Problem yet at missing kids promotes their response. Do they get gov funding? I think we need a CTA to fix that. All right. So now that we've drawn the attention where it needs to be on what a sham this is, right? Let's get back to our regular programming. I think we do need a CTA if these people are getting federal funding, right? We should be getting rid of that federal funding because it's our money and we get to decide. How did they say it? (laughs) Now back to your regularly programmed no, uh, I forget that term because so I want us to get into AI. All right, where is it? Let's go again. Let's go back to the German channel to tell you how the Chinese operate police stations across the world, but they're not marking all of them. Can you notice how there's none in China? <laughs> Just <laughs> Okay. All right, I'm going to breathe. All right, let's go. Let's go. Fucking maps. Thank <laughs> you.
We've known for many years uh, that uh, there are uh, consistent engagements by uh, representatives of the Chinese government into uh, Canadian communities with local media, uh, reports of uh, illicit uh, Chinese police stations. These are all things that we continue to be concerned about, that our officials uh, stay active on, uh, and that we will continue to be vigilant around to keep Canadians safe. The issue came to the fore at last month's G20 summit in Bali. Justin Trudeau told journalists he raised his concerns with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Xi scolded his counterpart over the incident. Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper, that's not appropriate. And that's not how the way the conversation was conducted. Beijing says the overseas police network is to help citizens process paperwork or to crack down on corruption. In 2019, Chinese law enforcement began officially working in Cambodia. Since then, hundreds of Chinese citizens accused of telecom fraud have been deported without due process. The FBI says that the latest revelations, however, mark an illegal expansion of China's police state. As we have seen a clear pattern of the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, exporting their, trans, their repression right here into the U.S. And we've had now a number of indictments that you may have seen of the Chinese engaging in uncoordinated quote-unquote law enforcement action right here in the United States, harassing, stalking, surveilling, blackmailing uh, people who they just don't like or who disagree with the, the Xi regime. The U.S. and a number of European countries, including Germany, have now opened investigations into the allegations of Chinese foul play on their soil. And for more context on this, I'm joined by Laura Hart. She's a campaign director at NGO Safeguard Defenders and joins me from Rome. Ms. Hart, welcome. Who is running these illegal police stations? I mean, are we talking of Chinese spies, diplomats, police persons? Thank you for having me. Uh, from what we gathered um, from the Chinese authorities themselves and from Chinese media reports on this subject, which is uh, the exclusive basis of, of our reporting on this, so we only used, and I wish to highlight this, uh, open source material available online from Chinese authorities, local authorities, and, and the media itself. So what we see from their statements is that these so-called overseas police service centers or police linkage centers, they have different names depending on what local jurisdiction is running them, uh, were set up by these local public security bureaus. We identified four of them uh, in close cooperation with the United Front Work Department. So it appears that these have been set up on top of, let's say, an existing network of United Front organizations and people tied to those organizations around the world. So we have no reason at this time to believe that people were brought into countries uh, to mm -hmm. exercise these functions, that these are you know, traditional spies or, or public security agents. Um, we cannot exclude that, but we have no evidence at this point that, that this would be the case. It really seems that they are using existing networks, United Front networks that have been there to build this extra function on. You're talking about an extra function, but isn't there an element of legality here as well? For instance, China does have 
joint police patrolling arrangements with countries like Italy, Serbia and Croatia. Surely police stations are a part of that deal, aren't they? I don't think they're a part of the deal or they, they mm -hmm. shouldn't be. Um, there's this varying responses to that. We see, for example, that when it comes to the service stations, and so we need to also um, diversify a bit between the different functions. So one part of the functions of these so-called service stations is in helping in the renewal of passports, driver's licenses, so more traditional consular tasks. Now, while these are worrying also, um, because if run by United Front uh, networks, and, and obviously we know that these are instruments that have been used in, in transnational repression efforts from the Chinese Communist Party, but in general, these kind of consular services might be legal if and only if and when uh, the host government consented to the setup of such, let's call them consular outposts. Uh, from what we gathered, that seems to be the case, for example, in South Africa. That does mm -hmm. not seem to be the case, however, uh, in countries such as Italy, Croatia or others where there are agreements on joint police patrols, but which is something completely different. And for example, in Italy, we've now started to get some responses from the interior minister who clearly stated that this was not part of the deal. Uh, so obviously we see from the Chinese side, from their statements, that they used these joint police patrols um, to set up these kind of stations, that they, cl right. they claim that these stations right. are one of the biggest achievements of those joint police patrols, but they do not seem to be part of what the government consented to. So th there's a lot of different things going on here, but it must be clear that in a majority of countries where we found them, because there was no express agreement by the host mm -hmm. governments, even on the so-called administrative consular tasks, these are fully clandestine. And I don't think any government really, even the South African authorities, right. have denied that they consented to the policing activities that these stations, these networks have been involved in. Your organization uncovered this network using publicly available sources, open source material essentially. Presumably this is something that the governments could have done as well. Were governments slacking? Look, when it comes to, we came across these stations because we are mapping and tracking the transnational repression efforts from the Chinese. No, no, no. They came across these stations when they realized that they're screwed and they ramped up money laundering in Ukraine to fix it. Now, before we shift gears and watch movie and get into AI, right? There's one more clip, which, you know what? No. It's not even relevant. So let's get on to our musical interlude. Musical interlude. And um, get some really good mashups in here. So we can shift gears into AI, which is an extremely, extremely hot topic. So let's get a little bit of Rickroll going. I'll see you guys in like... Four minutos. Enjoy the musical interlude. Once upon a time, not so long ago, we're no strangers to love. You know the rules, and so do I. I full commitments while I'm thinking of.
I hope you guys enjoyed today's Rickroll because it was necessary. But before we kind of just jump into, you know, what I, uh, well, you know, we talked about the whole Chinese spies and I urge all of you to kind of remind yourself of, you know, somebody else that got caught with a driver that's a Chinese spy that was one of the chiefs of the CCP police that made her name by killing and shooting Harvey Milk, where the guy who allegedly did it but didn't remember or kind of did it was acquitted because he ate too many Twinkies. I did a whole show on Feinstein, how she built her career on blood, red, China red, you know how the story goes. They're very smart. You should never underestimate the Chinese. I've, huh, I've said that many, many, many times before. Now, segueing into what we're going to talk about, which is AI, I'd like to just pinpoint the troubles that they're having. One thing that I have, the Chinese are having actually, because this is where it's going. Uh, I have explained the dynamics, the geopolitical dynamics, uh, you know, of the, the Asian continent, right? And yesterday it was so fun because this guy named Yusuf came in and, you know, sometimes when I host spaces or if I ask someone to host, it's, hey, put this word in the topic. Let's see who turns up. <laughs> that way I could see. So this guy named Yusuf popped on, troll, troll. Turned out he spoke Urdu. And I have to say that the story of Tori says began in 2007 in Islamabad, like really did. Like that was the kickoff, okay? So I wish I had a spilled tea moment, but I have told you guys before that one of the most dangerous intelligence agencies are, are the Pakistanis, right? And I was cussing in Urdu, but you know, here's, here's one thing. So I had befriended a person that had taught me how to cook egg buna. They were Bangladeshi, Bangladesh, big, big, big thing. Now, the reason I say this, and that's why ha, the Pakistanis were coming up, is because there is royalty there. Bangladesh, Pakistan. Remember, we have like a, a little, you know, Shia front, you know, by the Chinese border, right? Just saying. See, you know the names of royals and people, and where their names are shown means that they're running out of uh, dark puppet masters. So... Why would the European bloc, the Western bloc, insert the royalty of Pakistan? Actually, it's the House of Ibahani. Just so you know, they actually had uh, relocated to London, Richmond, London specifically, from a place called Isfahan in Kahar, Iran, right? They went to Bombay. They set up businesses. We're talking like 1800s. This is like their story, right? But here's the funny part. They own everything. The problems that we see in Kashmir, the issues that we see with the Shias. I mean, how could the Shias have such a small presence just by the border of the Chinese? Because that's the buffer zone, right? So you're going to see the Pakistanis coming in really hard. See, that was Obama's like, what? what is it? Like his card? Because, right? <laughs> you know, he was his third term. This is almost like his fourth term because his third term was undermining President Trump all this time with everybody. Right. But you're going to see the Pakistanis kick in. And the thing is, you know, no matter how much I appreciate the threat of the Chinese. Right. I, I really do appreciate it the way it is. And, you know, more props to them. They're intelligent. They're smart. And they know exactly what the heck they're doing. 
The problem is they are literally behind, eons behind on when we go to artificial intelligence. While many of you are like, what are you talking about, Dory? They have social credit scores and all this stuff. Well, let me show you what the West wants. What China already has is what the West wants. And I found this fantastic video called Beyond the Reset. It's an animated short film. Please grab your coffee and take a look at the future that um, those sitting in Congress and the Senate and at the World Economic Forum, World Food Program, UN, and other Western nations have in store for you. It's quite terrifying. This isn't to scare you. It's to show you what has been averted. You just don't see it yet. And this is speaking only for the United States for now. Good morning. We are bringing to you today's most important news from around the world. Despite all the extraordinary efforts, the government and health system workers are still struggling to bend the curve of growing cases caused by the latest variant of the virus. Five more people died today and 30 million tested positively. Citizens are now required to wear masks when they step out to the balconies of their isolation facilities and take them off only when they are back to the safety of their rooms. Stay compliant. Stay isolated. Stay safe. And now, on to other news. As the whole planet went on the righteous crusade against climate change and global warming, we are excited to spread the word about another successful project. As science tells us, during the night, plants release CO2 into the atmosphere. CO2 is a powerful greenhouse gas that dramatically contributes to global warming. But don't worry. Almost 100,000 square miles of South American rainforest has been cleared, and this area is used to construct one of the largest solar panel fields in the world that will provide us with a tremendous amount of clean energy. We will keep fighting the deadly forests and defeat climate change. That is all for today. Stay tuned for tomorrow's news. Bruce Kowalski, your weekly food ration has arrived. The Godfather movie is banned from our database for misrepresentation and stereotypization of the Italian community. Pulp Fiction movie is banned from our database for excessive violence and racist content. The movie 1984 never existed. Stay compliant. Stay isolated. Stay safe. And now, on to other news. Say goodbye to cows and beef. As you might know, cows and livestock agriculture in general is a source of methane, a powerful greenhouse gas. Cows fart, and the temperature on Earth rises one degree with each cow fart, contributing to global warming. This is why the authorities started a cow extermination program, and today the last herd of cows has been dealt with. The Earth has officially become a cow-free planet, and climate change is finally under control. You might get concerned, where would we obtain our proteins from? Chicken and pork are not commonly accessible products, and beef is gone now. Do not worry. Hundreds of alternative protein manufacturing facilities have been constructed on each continent. They process thousands of tons of protein-rich food. 
This alternative food contains way more protein than beef. It is cheap to cultivate and it doesn't contribute to global warming. Kudos to science and green agenda. That is all for today. Stay tuned for tomorrow's news. Bruce Kowalski. Your monthly universal basic income has been deposited into your account. For more information, press details. You have been paid 2,000 central bank digital tokens. The following fees are being deducted. Accommodation fee. Food ration fee. Recycling fee. Clean energy fee. Personal greenhouse gas emissions fee. Climate change fee. Diversity fee. Your current remaining balance is 5 central bank digital tokens, and if not spent, it will expire in 7 days. Attention. Important announcement. Dear residents of the quarantine facility number 89. Great news. Here at Nova Gene Labs, we grant you a chance to participate in the trials of our new drug, which has been developed by our research team. This drug is absolutely safe and will bring the end to the deadly virus we are all fighting together for the last several years. Those of you who chose to participate will get a significant social credit score boost. As the result, you will be relocated to a superior isolation facility. Receive a higher universal basic income and become eligible for an improved food ration. Should you choose to participate in the Nova Gene Labs Clinical Trials Program, our specialist will visit you within the next few hours, make an injection, and will be daily monitoring your condition online. Your participation is very important to us and the rest of the world. Make a difference. Follow the science and make the right choice. Nova Gene Labs is not responsible for any side effects, injuries, or death followed after the injection. Sorry to hear that. A new virus that emerged in Asia a couple of months ago keeps spreading all over the world. Some countries are imposing lockdowns and stay-home orders to protect their populations from this highly contagious disease. In our country, three persons in their 90s died of the virus in long-term care facilities. The virus keeps spreading in our country. Almost 500 new cases have been registered last week. As of today, the whole country is going into a complete lockdown. The health authorities are imposing a strict stay-at-home order. While these measures are tough, they are temporary. We need only two weeks to bend the curve. The pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Despite strict lockdowns being in place, the virus cases keep growing exponentially. The government is considering the option of proclaiming a state of emergency in some areas and relocating citizens to safe and isolated quarantine facilities. Attention all citizens. Your district is contaminated and you will be evacuated immediately. Please take only necessary personal belongings and step outside of your homes. You will be transported to a safe isolated location. Attention. 
Non-compliant resident alert. Attention. Non-compliant resident alert. Attention. Non-compliant resident alert. Attention. Non-compliant resident alert. Attention. Non-compliant resident alert. That was heavy. Well, disaster averted. See, this is exactly how I began, something completely benign. But then one has to wonder, what is going on? Well, if someone wanted to control the population, right, they have to give the population a reason to demand their assistance. Now, one would say, well, the threat of nuclear war would assist, and it did. I mean, look at us in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with the demonstration of eradicating Hiroshima, right? Everyone bowed down. They had nuke drills and panic. And that gave them a very good excuse for, you know, wars and making money. But see, uh, why would they select biological warfare? Well, because that's more personal, right? Biological warfare is more effective in controlling the populations as it can target specific groups of people based on their genetic makeup and geographical location. It can also be more covert, as you can see, and difficult to detect, allowing for greater control and manipulation. In addition, Biological warfare can have long-term effects on the population, such as reducing fertility rates, causing chronic illnesses, which can further aid in population control. However, even though this has ethical implications, there are potential consequences for both the targeted population and the people that choose to rule the world. You know, many, 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 many times again, I'm going to reiterate this as a, as a kind of a, a statement. I've said this before, base 60 math is necessary, what you call sexagesimal, right? Because it was actually used by ancient civilization, the Babylonians and the Sumerians. It is one of the most advanced techniques to use to um, uh, conduct mathematical equations and create algorithms. And, you know, when they used the base 60 um, model, it had, you know, the the, the system that's based on number 60, basically, has many divisors, making it useful for measuring time, angles, and geographical coordinates. In physics, um, using a base 60 model could be useful in that sense, right? Uh, involving circular motion or circadian rhythms or history repeating itself, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, it's important to note that ba base 10 math, which is the decimal mathematical system is commonly used in modern mathematics and science. And is it modern, really? I think it's dumbed down, to be honest. And it's important to understand how common core math is literally the same approach as, you know, moving from base 60 to base 10. 